0: Identity refers to essence, not feelings or emotions or even actions. And we know that during puberty, teenagers especially struggle with their identity. They always have. Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my meaning? What is my identity? Who am I really? Today.
1: Today. 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 With Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Mm-hmm. Hello, my name is Bill and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. In this episode, Pastor Jeff starts a series on sexuality, identity, and Jesus. Sexuality has become one of the most talked about and most sensitive topics in the past decade. As Christians, how are we to understand sexuality when it comes to identity and Jesus? In this new series, The Talk, Pastor Jeff Vines lays out the foundation for this topic and gives understanding on how we are to be identified by God and God alone. He starts by looking at Genesis chapter 1. And just a warning, there is some language and themes in this message that may not suit younger listeners.
0: Uh, Most of you know we enter into a season of probably one of the most important topics we've covered in a while. All topics are important, but there are some that are so ingrained in society that if we're not careful, we can lose sight of the biblical perspective of the issues that we face. So as you turn to Genesis, we're only going to be dealing with one text, and that's Genesis 1, and part of 26, but also 27. And by the way, I've said this in the past, so every time I do a series like this, I kind of go another step or another level because by far... By far, no series has catalyzed more research and more reading, more understanding. And so it took me back to, when I first went to New Zealand, I took a team of three other pastors, and we were going to plant a new church in the north shore of Auckland, a place called Albany. And three really gifted young ministers, because I knew if we were going to have a chance at doing something successful in a post-Christian nation like New Zealand... We were going to have to have some people who were committed and dedicated to the cause of christ to his kingdom and to the spiritual disciplines in their own life because of the temptations they would face being away from home being alone the most talented person on the team let's let, let's just say his name was john okay let's stop there in charge of music worship uh very talented he was one of the if you've ever been around somebody that you just want to be around them all the time they're just that they just bring life to the party the longer he stayed, the more I realized, even though we all knew him on the surface, we, I could tell because I'd been around people long enough that there was something underneath that we just could not read. And then we had to travel together to Australia where we were working on the work permits of our ministers who were with us. And he stayed in one room, I stayed in another. And I was going down the hallway one day and I looked and I saw something in a suitcase. And it doesn't matter what it was, but just to let you know that when I saw it, I was taken back. And I thought something's not right here. So I decided that I would take my friend, John, for lunch the next day, and I'd take him down to my Rangi bay, and we'd sit in the car looking over the ocean, and I would have a conversation with him. And I had that conversation. To make a long story short, my assumption that perhaps John was gay was real. And I had hoped that I could talk with him, assure him that I love him, and that we're going we're to address this together But I never got the chance because after that conversation, I never saw him again. I learned later that he got on a plane the next morning and left New Zealand. Now, as I look back at that, I think of a couple things. Number one, I think about given where the church was at that point in time and how people responded, I'd probably done the same. Second, where would the conversation have gone? How could we have helped? What, What would have happened? during this series you have to stay the course because i can't answer every question in one sermon and sometimes when i give you an answer it's going to create more questions but i promise you i will answer the questions it'll take me four weeks to do it but i will answer them and they will be answered i began asking the question probably more intently than i ever have last june when i began my research i started asking questions like this why is there so much consternation in culture over sexuality and identity? Why? why is there, and why is there such an aggression toward those who hold fast to a Christian ethic? In fact, what is the Christian sexual ethic? What is it? What does it look like? Is there one? How should parents respond to children who are struggling with sexual identity? How should Christians respond to their own same-sex attractions if they have same-sex attractions? Why do we seem more possessed with sex, gender, and identity than any generation before us? Some of you will say, we're not. Oh, yes, we are. Now, you'll notice when I do series like this, I don't quote Christian journals. I try to quote people in the secular world. Why? So that you'll understand that it's not just the Christian that is looking at these things. That's the entire secular world as well. We might not arrive at the same conclusions, but we're still looking at it. And the American Psychological Journal says this, and I quote, It is an unprecedented time in the history of human sexuality. In the United States, the age when people first marry and reproduce has been pushed back dramatically, while at the same time, the age of puberty has dropped resulting in an error in which young adults are physiologically able to reproduce, but not psychologically or socially ready to settle down and begin a family. These developmental shifts, research suggests, are some of the factors driving the increase in sexual hookups or uncommitted sexual encounters, part of a popular culture change that has infiltrated the lives of emerging adults throughout the Western world. So this isn't the Bible telling you this. This is the secular world telling you there are more hookups among the young, and they tell us that the age of puberty has dropped, but they don't tell us why. There was a report released in the LA Times in response to this idea that we are enamored with sex earlier and earlier, enamored with it, and promiscuity. And the LA Times, again, probably no friend of the Christian, released the report And I quote, it says this. Now, I'm not saying the LA Times says this. This is the report released in the LA Times. It says primetime TV shows sexualize the young girls portrayed in them. The report is based on content analysis of the most popular television shows for viewers aged 12 to 17 in 2009 to 2010. Now, you think about it, it's changed a lot in the last 10 years. When underage female characters appear on screen, more sexual content is depicted. The teen girls show next to no negative response to being sexualized, and more sexual incidents occur outside of any form of a committed relationship. As a result, real teens, real teens are led to believe their sole value comes from their sexuality. This is the cultural shift, folks. Among other things, the report found that underage female characters are shown participating in a higher percentage of sexual depictions compared to adults, that 93% of the sexual incidents involving underage female characters occurred within a context that qualified as unhealthy, and 75% of shows that included sexualized underage female characters were shows that did not have an S descriptor to warn parents about the sexual content. What is that saying it's saying that young girls and sex is everywhere. You know, I know I talk about golf a lot and you're tired of it, but it's, it's effective. But you know, I didn't have any interest in golf until I was 23 years old. And my basketball career was over and all my friends were playing and that's all they talked about. They were giving me golf magazines. It was the year 1986, golfers, you know what happened. Jack Nicklaus won the Masters at 46 years of age. It was huge. Everybody talked about golf. They read about golf. Golf was on television. So if you put constantly in front of somebody a certain thing, it's called marketing, by the way. If you put something continually in front of somebody, often enough, long enough, sooner or later, you're going to dive in. And so I did. That's true of sports, hobbies, food, travel, marketers depend on that. They get your eyes for the appeal in hopes that you'll be drawn in. The eyes are the window into everything else. That's why I constantly tell our staff, guys, you may want to be holy, you may want to be good, but your eyes are the windows. And what you look at, what you watch, it's going to impact you. And you can't, even if you don't want it to, it will, what you read, what you look at, what you watch, what you're enamored with, will impact you. And out of that will flow your actions, your thoughts, your desires, all of them. The eyes are the window to the soul. Now the question is, what percentage of television and movies and the internet do you think are sexual in nature and content 80 percent of everything you watch on television has some kind of sexual content and we're naive to think that all this sex and sexuality and our culture's take on it or view of these things has no impact on our junior hires you know when I was a boy, here, here's the difference. And I know you don't like old guys talking about, you know, when I went to school, we walked uphill barefoot in the snow, both ways, whatever. But <laughs> well, let me tell you something. It's, <clears throat> you and I have no idea what our young men and women are going through. We just don't. We have no idea the temptation before them and what it's doing to them. Today, You've got sexuality, you've got advice about sexuality, you've got pornography, you've got all these things everywhere and easy access to it. And if not at home, at school. Where when I was a boy, I often say to people, look, I'm a pastor, but if pornography was as accessible as it is today, back then, okay, I'm not gonna play Mr. Holy here, I can't promise you that I wouldn't have wanted to look. If it was that easy, the problem is I had no access to it. And if I went into the only place I knew I could get it, into the local grocery store or the supermarket, and I reached up on the top row to buy it, the guy behind the counter would say, hey, I know your dad, put it back, (laughs) right? The whole community was your father. Hey, Jeffrey A. Vines, I'll call Dean and he'll get in here and tan your hide, right? It's not that way anymore. And now we're being told, uh, sociologists tell us that if you want to alter or entice culture, inundate it. And we're told that porn has become the new sex and identity education. One-third of total daily searches on pornographic websites involve teen porn. Teen so our junior hires and high schoolers are receiving an education about sex and sexuality by an entity that objectifies women and presents sex as the pinnacle. You ain't nobody till you've engaged in this. So that your identity is attached to this. Some of you junior hires might be asking, what do you mean objectifies women? Well, that means you treat women as though their only purpose is to satisfy the desires of men. And on one hand, you have a culture saying you shouldn't do that. Then you have Hollywood and television doing exactly that. <laughs> so young girls are presented on television and movies in a sexual fashion with hair and makeup and scantily dressed curves all emphasized because this is the purpose television tells us, even though not in their words and their actions for which they were born. Little regard for intellectual contributions and a little emphasis on a young girl's ability to think critically and make genuine contributions to the world. Our culture is absolutely enamored and addicted to this aspect of the human experience. Folks, porn sales bring in more revenue every year than the MLB, the NBA, and the NFL combined, over 100 billion. 75% of porn sites are free, free, easily accessible. Again, these aren't, I'm not giving you numbers from some Christian article or journal. I'm giving you the numbers from secular journalists, okay? 85% of young men and nearly half of all women watch porn on a regular basis. The US is the largest producer and exporter of pornography worldwide. Hollywood releases 1,100 adult movies every year. So even though study after study shows that pornography addiction destroys present and future relationships, creates unrealistic expectations that both men and women cannot, in fact, should not want to live up to, brings a debilitating guilt or shame, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, religious or irreligious, and objectifies both men and women devaluing love and intimacy while elevating sex to godlike levels, even though Every look, you say what study? I, I don't have to quote one. Just Google the effects of pornography. Just Google it. There are too many. Even though we know this, nothing has changed, and it doesn't take an Einstein to draw few conclusions. First, our generation, an entire generation, has no idea concerning the realities of sex and identity because they've been raised by a dream world. They've been educated by fairyland. Imagine education concerning sex and identity coming from pornography, television, and movies by a world that has little to no connection to reality. Second, this world is forced on our teenagers every day. All day, every day through television, the internet, even basic searches. There's not a day that I'm not in my office where I'm not searching for something and something comes up. Every day... Imagine young people, they're going to click on it. You know how Google works, right? You click on it, you're going to get more. And you click on that, you're going to get more. Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye or eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness indeed. You remember when we were little, we used to sing the song, Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Why? Because it impacts your whole body, your thinking, the way you respond to everything. And if there's no filtering system in your eyes, death enter in. And with respect to our times, the windows are wide open. And an entire generation has been duped into believing that here's where, the, all right, here's where we make the transition. Do I have you? An entire generation hasn't been duped into believing that sex and identity are the same thing. It's amazing. So let's, first of all, this week, lean into this a little bit by understanding that understanding what identity is is fundamental to this entire discussion. And here's a definition of identity that you get from your basic dictionary. Identity is this the state or fact of remaining the same one as under varying aspects or conditions. Identitas is the Latin word, which means again and again. So by definition, identity at its core is unchanging. You are who you are under all circumstances. So the question is, who are you? The other thing is identity refers to essence, not feelings or emotions or even actions. Now, this is important. This is the hardest part of the message, but you've got to track with me. And we know that during puberty, teenagers especially struggle with their identity. They always have. Who am I really? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my meaning? What is my identity? But here's the problem. So a young girl, 15 years old, comes into my office and says this. She's having tears because she's a Christ follower, but she says, I'm having same-sex attraction, and she says this to me. Why would God make me this way and then not allow me to be who I am? Now, notice how the question is phrased. She is simply a victim of her time. The way she's phrased the question is this. Being gay is no longer what I'm attracted to or what I desire or what I do. It's now who I am. Attraction Is the same thing as identity now. In the conversation around sexuality, a shift has occurred from what to who, and that's caused a totally distorted, radically distorted view of personhood. Follow me again. Does what I do truly define, or what I feel truly define, who I am? Now, who I am really, indeed, will greatly influence what I do. I get that. But the truth is, I often do or feel things that do not define me, that are not consistent with my identity. You say, If I ask you, who, who am I? You'd say, well, you're Pastor Jeff. Well, pastor doesn't define my identity. That's something I do. Well, you're a golfer and a bad one. Okay. But still, Still, that's, that's not who I am. That's not my identity. It's something that I do, something I have a passion for. Well, you're a husband. Again, that's a role that I play, but it's not my identity. Well, you're somebody that suffers from anxiety. Okay, does that define me? Is that who I am? An anxious person? I'm a father. Okay, that's another role that I play. I'm heterosexual. Is that my identity? Or is that something I feel or do. Now, here's the greater problem. If I have a flawed view of who I really am, then I'm also going to have a flawed personal ethic because there's a close relationship between essence, who I am, and ethics, how I will live my life. The two inform each other. So who I am in essence greatly impacts what I do or do not do. And if I have a flawed view of who I really am, then I have a flawed personal ethic. Well, that was hard, but you're with me still, right? Let me give you a quote From Christopher Yon, who's a Harvard graduate, very sharp mind, who is gay. Here is what he says, and I quote, When I came out in my early 20s, I believed the only way to live authentically as a gay man was to fully embrace that identity. Being gay was who I was. As a matter of fact, my whole world was gay. Almost everyone I knew was gay. All my friends were gay. My neighbors were gay. My apartment manager was gay. My barber was gay. My house cleaner was gay. My bookkeeper was gay. My car salesman was gay. I worked out at a gay gym and bought groceries at a gay Kroger. Sexuality was the core of who I was and everything and everyone around me affirmed that. And if I'm gay truly means that that's who I am, it would be utterly cruel for someone to condemn me for simply being myself. But then he says, yet we know that we are created in God's image thus rejecting our inherent essence and replacing it with simply what we feel or do is in reality an attempted coup d'etat against our Creator we don't need to find our identity our identity is given by God but why is this not apparent to everyone what causes our gay loved ones to be so easily misled why does my gay Christian friend identify more with being gay than being Christian Where and when did this incorrect perspective originate? How did what I do and what I feel become who I am? Or put another way, how did this is how I am become this is who I am? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I applied the same critique that I did when I was at Harvard to the Bible, and I discovered that my identity is unchanging. My identity is not in how I feel or what I do, but who I essentially am. So the ultimate question is, who are we? Now, let me go back and answer his question, though. How is it that how I am became who I am? Well, it started in the mid-1800s when atheism was gaining steam and psychiatrists and philosophers like Richard von Kraft Ebbing and especially Sigmund Freud inverted biblical truth and said that identity is determined by what you feel and how you behave rather than by who you truly are in essence. Now, you think about Think about what they're saying, identity is subjective. Well, if identity is subjective, can it not change throughout the course of humanity? But identity by definition means unchanging no matter what the circumstance. He says that identity then is subjective, not objective, which is a self-defeating argument. He would say that identity is determined by what you feel rather than who you really are. Ironically, out of that entire movement came depression, confusion, and nihilism. And then something called, and I got to do this in like three minutes here, something called existentialism emerged. And in existentialism, experience becomes everything. Experience becomes God. Experience becomes your truth. There is no objective truth because there is no God. So truth becomes whatever you feel. That's called existentialism. Experience alone determines what is true. And now think about what our young people are facing. Because sex and sexuality have been elevated to the ultimate experience in a sex-crazed world, I now attach my identity, even my essence, to that very thing. So if I feel a certain way or have certain attractions, then I must be a certain way. And that must be my identity or my essence. Again, logically, this makes no sense because identity by definition means this, the state or fact of remaining the same one is under varying aspects or conditions. My emotions and my feelings are always changing. Does that mean my identity is always changing as well? No, unfortunately, Christ followers have also been tainted by existentialism.
1: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
0: We used to be solo Scripture. Scripture alone determines what is real, what is true. But now we are solo experience, experience alone. What I feel is who I am. Feelings, not Scripture, determine truth and identity. You with me? You can listen to more
1: messages like this just search for today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me wanna taste and sing with every single breath I breathe. I will break this heart You are my wonder, you make the wonder. Today, 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 today with Jeff Vines.